0: Section 13 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 7. Birjand and the Frontier of Afghanistan Part 1 Thirty miles over hill and dale, after leaving the little hamlet, and, behold, the city of Birjand appears before me but a mile or thereabouts away. At the foot of the hills I am descending. One's first impression of Birjand is a sense of disappointment the city is a jumbled mass of uninteresting mud buildings ruined and otherwise all of the same dismal mud-brown hue not a tree exists to relieve the eye nor a solitary green object to break the dreary monotony of the prospect the impression is that of a place existing under some dread ban of nature that forbids the enlivening presence of a tree or even the redeeming feature of a bit of green sward the broad, sandy bed of a stream contains a sluggishly flowing reminder of past spring freshets, but the quickening presence of a stream of water seems thrown away on Birjand except as furnishing a place for closely veiled females to come and wash clothes, and for the daily waiting and disporting of amphibious youngsters. In any other city, a part of its mission would be the nurturing of vegetation. The Amir, heshmet E. I quickly learn, is living at his summer garden at Aliabad for Farsakhs to the east. Curious to see something of a place so much out of the world and so little known as Birjand, I determine upon spending the evening and night here and continuing on to Aliabad next morning. There appears to be absolutely nothing of interest to a casual observer about the city except its population and they are interesting from their strange, cosmopolitan character, and as being the most unscrupulous and keenest people for money one can well imagine. The city seems a seething nest of hard characters, who buzz around my devoted person like wasps, seemingly restrained only by the fear of retribution from pouncing on my personal effects and depriving me of everything I possess. The harrowing experiences of Torbet i Hederi have taught a useful lesson that stands me in good stead at Birjand. Ere entering the city proper, I enlist the services of a respectable-looking person to guide the way, at once, where the pressing needs of hunger can be attended to, before the inevitable mob gathers about me and renders impossible this very necessary part of the program. Having duly fortified myself against the anticipated pressure of circumstances by consuming bread and cheese, and Shirah in the semi-seclusion of a suburban bakehouse, my guide conducts me to the caravanserai, receives his baksheesh, and loses himself in the crowd that instantly fills the place. The news of my arrival seems to set the whole city in a furor. Besides the crowds below, the gouged roof of the caravanserai becomes standing room for a mass of human beings, to the imminent danger of breaking it in. So at least, thinks the caravanserai G, who becomes anxious about it and tries to persuade them to come down, but he might as well attempt to summon down from above the unlistening clouds. Around two sides of the caravanserai compound is a narrow, bricked walk, elevated to the level of the benzel floors. At the imminent risk of breaking my neck, I endeavor to appease the clamorous multitude riding to and fro for the edification of what is probably the wildest-looking assembly that could be collected anywhere in the world. Afghans, with tall, conical, gold-threaded headdresses, converted into monster turbans by winding around them yards and yards of white, or white and blue cloth, three feet of which is left dangling down the back, Beluches in flowing gowns that were once white, Arabs in the striped mantles and peculiar headdress of their country, dervishes, Molas, Seyuds, and the whole fantastic array of queer-looking people living in Birjand, traveling through or visiting here to trade. Some of the Afghans wear a turban and cammerbund, all of one piece. After winding the long cotton sheet a number of times about the peaked headdress, it is passed down the back and then ends in a career in the form of a camera bund about the waist. Fights and tumults occur as the result of the caravanserai I.G.'s attempt to shut the gate and keep them out, and in despair he puts me in a room and locks the door. In less than five minutes the door is broken down, and a second attempt to seclude myself results in my being summarily pelted out again with stones through a hole in the roof. A Yazdi traveller occupying one of the menzels, all of which at Birjand are provided with doors and locks, now invites me to his quarters. Locking the door and keeping me out of sight, he hopes by making me his guest to assist in getting rid of the crowd. Whatever his object, its consummation is far from being realized. The unappeased curiosity of the crowds of newly arriving people finds expression in noisy shouts and violent hammering on the door, creating a din so infernal that the well-meaning traveller quickly tires of his bargain. Following the instincts of the genuine Oriental, he conjures up the genius of diplomacy to rid himself of his guest and the annoyance occasioned by my presence if you go outside and ride around the place once more he says inshallah the people will all go home this is a very transparent proposition a broad hint covered with the thin varnish of persian politeness no sooner am i outside than the door is locked and the wily yezdi has accomplished his purpose of ousting me and thereby securing a little peace for himself no right-thinking person will blame him for turning me out on the contrary he deserves much praise for attempting to take me in i now endeavour to render my position bearable by locking up the bicycle and allowing the populace to concentrate their eager gaze on me perching myself on the roof in position to grant them a fair view swarms of people come flocking up after me evidently no more able to control their impulse to follow than if they were so many bleeding sheep following the tinkling leadership of a bellwether or a goat the caravanser I.G. begs me to come down again, fearing the weight will cause the roof to cave in. Well nigh at my wit's end, what to do, I next take up a squatting position in a corner, and resign myself to the unhappy fate of being importuned to ride, shouted at in the guttural tones of desert tribesmen, questioned in unknown tongues, solicited for alms, and schemed against, and worried for this, that and the other by covetous and evil-minded ruffians. The Inglis have pukai lai pool, much money, says one ferocious-looking individual to his companion, and their black eyes glisten, and their fingers rub together feverishly as they talk, as if the mere imagination of handling my money were a luxury in itself. He must have a kiley pool if he is going all the way to Hindostan Kili Pool, suggests another, and the covetousness of dozens of keenly interested listeners finds expression in pool pool, the Ingalis have kiley Pool. One eager ragamuffin brings me half a dozen sour and shrivelled oranges, utterly worthless, for which he asks the outrageous sum of three Karons. A second villainous-looking specimen worries me continuously to leave the caravanserai and go with him somewhere. I never could make out where. He looks the veriest cutthroat, and, curious to penetrate the secret of his intentions and perchance secure something interesting for my note-book, I at length make pretense of according to his wishes. Bystanders at once interfere to prevent him enticing me away, and when he angrily remonstrates, he is hustled unceremoniously out into the street. He is a bad man, they say. Nis nice Kub Adam. Nothing daunted by the summary ejection of this person, a dervish with the haggard face and wild, restless eyes of one addicted to Bong, now volunteers to take me under his protection and lead me out of the caravanserai to Where? He vouchsafes no explanation where. None, at least, that is at all comprehensible to me. Where do these interesting specimens of Birjan's weird population want to entice me to? Why do they want to entice me anywhere? I conclude to go with the dervish and find out. The crowd enter their remonstrances again, but the dervish wears the garb of holy mendicancy, violent hands must not be laid on the sacred person of a dervish. Our path is barred at the outer gate of the caravanserai, however, by two men in semi-military uniforms, armed with swords and huge clubs. They chide the dervish for wanting to take me with him, and have evidently been placed at their post by the authorities. Soon a uniformed official comes in and tries to question me, he is a person of very limited intelligence incapable of understanding and making himself understood through the medium of the small stock of his native tongue at my command the linguistic abilities of the strange semi-civilized audience about us comprise persian turkish hindostani and even a certain amount of russian not a soul besides myself knows a single word of english after queries have been propounded to me in all these tongues my intellectual interviewer gives me up in despair and addressing the crowd about us cries out in astonishment parsee nice turkshi binmus hindostani nay peruski nikt mashallah what language does he speak English, English, English! shout at least a dozen more knowing people than himself oh ingilis,' says the officer condemning his own lack of comprehension by the tone of his voice aha ingelis aha and he looks over the crowd apologetically for not having thought of so simple a thing before but having ascertained that i speak english he now proceeds to treat me to a voluble discourse in simon-pure persian seeing that i fail to comprehend the tenor of the officer's remarks some of the garrulous crowd vouchsafes to explain in turkish others in indostani and one in russian in the absence of a lunatic asylum to dodge into i fasten on to the officer and get him to take me out and show me the aliabad road so that i can find the way out early in the morning another caravanserai is found located nearer the road leading from the city eastward and i determine to change my quarters quietly by the light of the moon leaving the crowd in ignorance of my whereabouts so that there will be no difficulty in getting through the streets in the morning late at night when the now quieted city is bathed in the soft mellow light of the moon and the crenellated mud walls and old ruins and archways cast weird shadows across the silent streets with a few chosen companions, parties to the secret of the removal, the bicycle is trundled through the narrow, crooked streets and under-arched alleyways to the caravanserai on the eastern edge of the city. Seated beneath the shadowy archway of the first caravanserai is a silent figure smoking a callion. As we open the gate to leave, the figure rises up and thrusts forth an alms-receiver, and in a loud voice sings out, Bakshish! Sheesh huck ya huck! It is the same dervish that was turned back with me by the guards at the same gate this afternoon. My much needed slumbers at my new quarters are rudely disturbed, as a set of errand might perhaps declare under similar circumstances, before they are commenced by the fearful yowling of birjand cats. Several of these animals are paying their feline compliments to the moon from different roofs and walls hard by and their utterances strike my unaccustomed unaccustomed to the beurgeon variety of cat music ears as about the most unearthly sound possible fancying the noises made by women wailing for the dead from a striking resemblance to the weird night sounds heard it will be remembered at bay bazaar asia minor volume One. i go outside and listen Many guesses would most assuredly be made by me before guessing cats as the authors of such unearthly music. But cats it is, nevertheless, for, seeing me listening outside by the door, one of the sharers of my rude quarters comes out and removes all doubt by drawing the rude outlines of a cat in the dust with his finger, and by delivering myself of an explanatory meow. The owl of a beer cat is several degrees more soul-harrowing than anything inflicted by midnight prowlers upon the Occidental world, and I learn afterward that they not infrequently keep it up in the daytime. An early start, sixteen miles of road without hills or mountains, but embracing the several qualities of good, bad, and indifferent, and at eight o'clock I dismount in the presence of a little knot of Heshmet-e-Mulk's retainers congregated outside his summer garden, and a goodly share of the population of the adjacent village of Ali Abad. While yet miles away, Ali Abad is easily distinguished as being something out of the ordinary run of Persian villages by the luxuriant foliage of the Amir's garden. The whole country around is of the same desert-like character that distinguishes well nigh all this country and the dark leafy grove of trees standing alone on the grey camel-thorn plain derives additional beauty and interest from the contrast the village of aliabad consisting of the merest cluster of low mud hovels and a few stony acres wrested from the desert by means of irrigation the people ragged dirty and uncivilized looks anything but an appropriate dwelling-place for a great chieftain The summer garden itself is enclosed within a high mud wall, and it is only after passing through the gate and shutting out the rude hovels, the rag-bedecked villagers, and the barren desert, that the illusion of unfitness is removed. My letter is taken in to the Amir, and in a few minutes is answered, in a most practical manner, by the appearance of men carrying carpets, tent poles, and a round tent of blue and white stripes." winding its silvery course to the summer garden from a range of hills several miles distant is a clear cold stream although so narrow as to be easily jumped and nowhere more than knee deep the presence of trout betrays the fact that it never runs dry the tent is pitched on the banks of this bright little stream the entrance but a half dozen paces from its sparkling water and a couple of guards are stationed nearby to keep away intrusive villagers an abundance of edibles including sweetmeats, bowls of sherbet and dried apricots, and pears from Foorg are provided at once. A neatly dressed attendant squats himself down on the shady side of the tent outside, and at ridiculously short intervals brings me in a newly primed callion and a samovar of tea. Everything possible to contribute to my comfort is attended to and nothing overlooked, and the Amir furthermore proves himself sensible and consider it above the average of his fellow-countrymen by leaving me to rest and refresh myself in the quiet retreat of the tent till four o'clock in the afternoon reclining on the rich persian carpet beneath the gaily striped tent entertained by the babbling gossip of the brook provided with luxuriant food and watchful attendants taking an occasional pull at a jewelled callion primed with a mild and seductive product of Shiraz, or sipping fragrant tea it is very difficult to associate my present conditions and surroundings with the harassing experiences of a few hours ago this marvellous transformation in so short a time from the madding clamour of an inconsiderate mob to the nerve-soothing murmur of the little stream from the crowded and filthy caravanserai to the quiet shelter of the luxurious tent in a word from purgatory to paradise what can have brought it about surely nothing less than the good genie of aladdin's lamp a very agreeable and withal intelligent young man the incumbent of some office about the amir's person no doubt amirza pays me a visit at noon apparently to supervise the serving up of the more than bountiful repast sent in from his master's table my attention is at once arrested by the english coat of arms on his sword-belt both belt and clasp have evidently wandered from the ranks of the british army Sahib, he says, in reply to my inquiries, it is a relic of the Sistan Boundary Commission. About four o'clock the same young man and a companion appear with the announcement that the emir is ready to receive me, and requests that I bring the bicycle with me into the garden. The stream flows through a low arch beneath the wall and lends itself to the maintenance of an artificial lake that spreads over a large proportion of the enclosed space. The summer garden is a fabrication of green trees and the cool glimmer of shaded water, rather than the flower beds, the turf and shrubbery of the occidental conception of a garden. The Amir's quarters consist of an unpretentious one-storied building fronting on the lake. The Amir himself is found seated on a plain divan at the open-windowed front, toying with a string of amber beads. A dozen or so retainers are standing about, in respectful and expectant attitudes, ready at a moment's notice to obey any command he may give, or to anticipate his personal wants. He is a stoutly built, rather ponderous sort of individual, with a full, rotund face and a heavy, unintellectual but good-natured expression. One's first impression of him is apt to be less flattering to his head than to his heart he is a person however that improves with acquaintance and is probably more intelligent than he looks he seems to be living here in a very plain and unpretentious manner no gaudy stained glass no tinsel no mirror-work no vain gee of any description impart a cheap and garish glitter to the place no gorgeous apparel bedecks his ample proportions Clad in the ordinary dress of a well-to-do Persian nobleman, Heshmet e happy and contented in the enjoyment of creature comforts and the universal esteem of his people, probably finds his chief pleasure in sitting where we now find him, looking out upon the garden trees and glimmering waters of the garden, smoking his Kalian, and attending to the affairs of state in a quiet, unostentatious manner. With a refreshing absence of ceremonial, he discusses with me the prospects of my being able to reach India over land. The conversation on his part, however, almost takes the form of trying to persuade me from my purpose altogether, and particularly not to attempt Afghanistan. The Harud is as wide as from here to the other side of the lake, yonder, two hundred yards, tuned, swift, as a swift-running horse, and deep as this house, he informs me. No bridge, no ferry boat? No means of getting across? Aich? No, replies the Amir. Pull nice. Kishti nice. Can't it be forded with camels? Shutor nice. No village with people to assist with poles or skins to make a raft? Afghani dashed adam, nomads. No poles. You might perhaps find skins, but the river is tund, tund. SKIN NICE, POLES NICE, TUND, and the Amir points to a bird hopping about on the garden walk, intimating that the Harud flows as swiftly as a flight of a bird. The result of the conference I have been so anxiously looking forward to is anything but an encouraging picture, a picture of insurmountable obstacles on every hand the deep sand and burning heat of the dreadful lut desert intervenes between me and the mekran coast the route through beluchistan barely passable with camels and guides and skins of water in the winter is not only impracticable for anything in the summer but there is the additional obstacle of the spring floods of the helmund and the Sistan lake The emir's description of the Lut desert and Beluchistan is but a confirmation of my own already-arrived-at conclusions concerning the utter impracticability of crossing either in the summer, and with a bicycle, but the wish gives birth to the thought that perhaps he may not unlikely be indulging in the Persian weakness for exaggeration in his graphic portrayal of the difficulties presented by the Harud. The region between Birjand and the Harud is on my map a dismal-looking blankety-blank stretch of country, marked with the ominous title Dashti, which being interpreted into English means desert of despair a gleam of hope that things may not be quite so hopeless as pictured is born of the fact that in dwelling on the difficulties of the situation the emir makes less capital out of this same desert of despair than of the harud which has to be crossed on its eastern border as regards interference from the legation of Tehran, thank goodness i am now three hundred miles from the nearest telegraph pole and shall enter afghanistan at a point so much nearer to Quetta than to the boundary commission camp that the chances seem all in favour of reaching the former place if i only succeed in reaching the dashti na umid and the harud the result of the foregoing deliberations is a qualified qualified by the absence of any alternative save turning back, determination to point my nose eastward and follow its leadership toward the British outpost at Quetta. Kylie Koub, very well, replies the Amir, as he listens to my determination. Kylie Koob, and he takes a few vigorous whiffs at his Kalian, as though, conscious of the uselessness of arguing the matter any further with a Ferengi, he were dismissing the ghost of his own opinions in a cloud of smoke. Shortly after sunrise on the following morning, a couple of well-mounted horsemen appear at the door of my tent, armed and equipped for the road. Their equipment consists of long guns with resting fork attachment, the prongs of which project above the muzzle-like, a two-pronged pitchfork, swords, pistols, and the brave but antique display of warlike paraphernalia characteristic of the East. One of them, I am pleased to observe, is the genial young Mirza, whose snuff-colored roundabout is held in place by the dieu et mon droit belt of yesterday. His companion is the ordinary sowar, or irregular horseman, of the country. They announce themselves as bearers of the Amir's salams and as my escort to Tabas, a village two marches to the east." A few miles of plain, with a gradual inclination toward the mountains, ten miles up the course of a mountain stream, up, 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 to where thawing snow-banks make the pathway anything but pleasant for my escort's horses, and ten times worse for a person reduced to the necessity of lugging his horse along, over the summit, and down, down, down again, over a fearful trail for a wheelman, or, more correctly over no trail at all, but scrambling as best one can over rocks, along ledges, often in the water of the stream, and finally reaching the village of Darmian, the end of our first day's march, about 3 p.m. Darmian is situated in a rugged gulch, and the houses, gardens, and orchards ramble all over the place with little regard to regularity, although some attempt has been made of forming streets darmian and pourg are twin villages but a short distance apart in this same gulch and are famous for dried apricots pears and dried beetroots and for the superior quality of its among the absurdities that crop up during the course of an eventful evening at Darmian is the case of a patriarchal villager whose broad and enlightening experience of some threescore years has left him in the possession of a marvelously logical and comprehensive mind. Hearing of the arrival of a Farangi with an iron horse, this person's subtle intellect pilots him into the stable of the place we are stopping at and leads him to search curiously therein with the expectation, we may reasonably presume, of seeing the bicycle complacently munching ka and jow. This is perhaps not so much to be wondered at, when it is reflected that plenty of people hereabout have no conception whatever of a wheeled vehicle, never having seen a vehicle of any description. The good people of Darmian, as is perhaps quite natural in people near the frontier, betray a pardonable pride in comparing Persia with Afghanistan always to the prodigious disadvantage of the latter. In the course of the usual examination of my effects, they are immensely gratified to learn from my map that Persia is much the larger country of the two. A small corner of India is likewise visible on the map, and, taking it for granted, that the map represents India as fully as it does Persia, the Khan, on whom I am unwittingly bestowing the rudiments of a false but patriotic geographical education, turns around and with swelling pride informs the delighted people that Saistan is larger than India and Iran bigger than all the rest of the world, he taking it for granted that my map of Persia is a map of the whole world. More and more fantastic grow the costumes of the people as one gets farther, so to speak, out of civilization and off the beaten roads. The ends of the turbans here are often seen gathered into a sort of bunch or tuft on the top. The ends are fringed or tipped with gold, and, when gathered in this manner, create a fanciful, crested appearance, impart a sort of cockadoodle a doo aspect to the wearer. Among the most interesting of my callers are three boys of eight to twelve summers, who enter the room chewing leathery chunks of dried beetroot. Although unwashed, unwiped, and otherwise undistinguishable from others of the same age about the place, they are gravely introduced as Khan, this, that, and the other, respectively, and while they remain in the room, obsequiousness marks the deportment of everybody present, except their father, and he regards them with paternal pride they are sons of the village khan and as such are regarded superior beings by the common people about them it looks rather ridiculous to see grown people bearing themselves in a retiring servile manner in deference to youngsters glaringly ignorant of how to use a pocket-handkerchief and who look as if their chief pastime were chewing dried beetroot and rolling about in the dust but presently it is revealed that their first visit has been a mere informal call to satisfy the first impulse of youthful curiosity by and by their fond parent takes them away for half an hour and then ushers them into my presence again transformed into gorgeous youths with nice clean faces and wiped noses marshalling themselves gravely opposite where i am sitting they put their hands solemnly on their youthful stomachs salaam, and gracefully drop down into a cross-legged position on the carpet. They look like real little chieftains now, both in dress and deportment. Scarlet roundabouts, trimmed with a profusion of gold braid, bedeck their consequential bodies. Red slippers embroidered with gold thread cover their feet, and their snowy turbans end in a gold-flecked tuft of transparent muslin that imparts a bantam-like air of superiority. Their father comes and squats down beside me, and, as we sip tea together, he bestows a fond parental smile upon the three scarlet poppies, sitting motionless, with heads slightly bent and eyes downcast before us, and inquires by an eloquent sweep of his chin what I think of them as specimens of Simon-pure nobility. End of Section 13. Recording by William Tomko.